name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. This month on the Northern Logger podcast, we spoke with Rick Hearn, who's the CEO of Hearn Hardwoods, which is located in Oxford, Pennsylvania. I initially met Hearn because of an interest that I had developed in historical wooden boats. There are several rebuilds of historical wooden boats in upstate New York, where I live and where our magazine is based, including one that was built by the folk singer Pete Seeger that sails up and down the Hudson River. And so as a logging and timber processing journalist, I couldn't help but wonder, where do these boats get their wood? And long story short, through asking people in the area and calling around to different captains of wooden boats around the Northeast, it eventually led me to Hearn Hardwoods. And I realized at that point that I had been asking the wrong question. The better question was, what kind of person supplies rare wood to historic wooden ships? And the answer is a person like Rick Hearn, who's a craftsman and a lumber supplier and a world traveler and who's just had a very interesting career in the forest products industry. And Hearn doesn't only supply shipwrights, he supplies cabinet makers and artists and just people who want wood that's a little out of the ordinary. So on this month's podcast, we spoke with him about his career, which he describes as a interesting trip so far. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, John Deere. With everything that's stacked against you, you need an equipment provider that backs you 100%. John Deere offers proven products and intelligent innovations that go beyond high-quality, productive machines. Our focus on helping you has helped make us the leader in forestry industry, delivering full solutions for over 50 years. Number one in the woods, John Deere. So, yeah, are you, are you originally from Pennsylvania? I am not. My father was in the Army, so I think I went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school, and then a couple different colleges spread out over a period of time. And you said when you were younger, you were kind of like a hippie, right? Did that, yeah. was uh, living communally with some people down uh, in Virginia. I... Uh, made my living, you know, I was always going to be a doctor or an architect or something like that. I went to the University of Richmond and uh, being part of the Vietnam War pro- protest movement and all that, it just uh, wasn't coming together real clearly. So I decided to take a year off and here I am, you know, I'm <laughs> 69 years old. But it's been an interesting trip so far. Uh, At one point, it occurred to me, people actually made things. You know, growing up, you sure, you go to a store and you buy things and you see people working, but it never, that was never something as a middle-class kid, was never something I considered an option or it was never, uh, I was never encouraged to consider that an option or arts an option. Both of my parents were products of the Depression, so they were always sort of concerned in safety. I guess they never figured I'd be a logger, which is the least safe occupation in the country. (laughs) But uh, 
you know, that was part of it. Uh, so anyway, I uh, was exposed to some people doing leather work one time, and I thought, wow, I could do that. Maybe I could make a little bit of money and I wouldn't have to get a job. So I self-taught myself leather work and ended up being pretty good at it. Uh, I was doing the finest art and craft shows in the country, the real highly juried ones. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but uh, things like Lincoln Center and uh, Coconut Grove and Winter Park, my specialties were attaché cases and guitar straps. And the attaché cases were because you could use great big pieces of leather and you could put a lot of money into it, a lot of time into it and get uh, artistic gratification by really being able to immerse yourself in a project rather than uh, making a wristband. And the guitar straps, because I was playing music and wasn't making much money, there was a lot of artistic gratification in that lifestyle. There wasn't much of a financial reward. Of the guitar straps, I would go to music stores and trade so many guitar straps for a guitar or an amplifier or something like that, which I wouldn't have been able to afford if I had had to pay cash. And did working with your hands come naturally to you, or was there a steep learning curve with that? Yeah, it's, when you get your hands like in something like a an oil or a cream, and you're massaging a beautiful piece of leather, it's uh, you know sensually gratifying. The, you get the same thing out of doing woodwork, actually, when you start uh, sanding wood and putting a, rubbing an oil finish into it. But I ended up being pretty good at it. But as part of the lifestyle, I didn't like making things over and over again. I wasn't any good at having hiring somebody because the hardest part of that occupation or art in that matter is marketing it. And uh, I needed to find customers to keep me busy. It was it just wasn't in my nature to find the customers and then keep other people busy with me watching over their shoulder. I didn't like people telling me what to do. I've always worked for myself because I always considered myself unemployable. <laughs> do you have employees now? I do, yeah. And it always sort of baffles me. I always sort of try to treat them as... I try to make this the job that if I had to have a job, I could do this. Yeah, we have about uh, 22 people. Well, being part of the uh, artistic community, it was, again, artistically gratifying, but not necessarily, uh, it was financially compromised. Drove old vehicles, had to fix them myself, heated my house with firewood that I processed myself, grew our own vegetables, fixed our own cars. Uh, my wife was a quilter doing uh, wall-hanging quilts, uh, gallery quality. Again, not necessarily financially successful, but she did win prizes. And I won prizes for my leather work. So we had respect among our peers, and we were traveling with some of the finest up-and-coming or already, <laughs> already successful artists, photographers, and uh, craftsmen in the country. I was playing in a country and western band with a logger, and we were playing honky-tonks all over the place, uh, eastern Pennsylvania, within 50 miles of here. And uh, he used to let me go behind him and cut firewood after he finished a job. 
being part of the art show circuit, I knew people that were doing work in the style of George Nakashima and Wendell Castle, uh, and I always dabbled a little bit in woodwork. Um, I would do like rosewood attaché cases with leather top and bottom and trim them in cobra skin. So he would leave really cool pieces of wood behind him. If in those days, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, in order to market a log in Pennsylvania, it had to be 8 feet long, it had to be a minimum of 12 inches, and it had to be absolutely straight. And for veneer, it could have no defects. So if he found like a 12-foot walnut log out of a tree and it had a crotch at the top end, he would cut three or four back until three or four feet back until it had just one center so that he could market it to a veneer mill, that being Charlie Greer, the uh, logger that I was working with. And he would leave that four feet of a 30-inch walnut log there with a beautiful crotch on it too pretty to burn, so I would muscle it in the back of my old pickup truck and take it to a local sawmill and get them to saw it, sort of in the style of pieces that George Nakashima would use. Sort of being a slow learner, it took me a couple of years to realize that Charlie was doing a lot less work for a lot more money than I was doing. He'd make two or three cuts on a tree and take it to market, and then I would make... Uh, 50 or 100 cuts and then get out my axe and split it. And he was doing everything with machinery. I was doing everything with my back. So had an opportunity one time, was actually buying the first house I ever bought. And as we're sitting around the table, the other side had a lawyer and we're asking, uh, what do you do for a living? What do you do? And I was telling him about a little of the woodwork I did. And, uh, he said, well, I've got some walnut trees, and I could use a kitchen table. Can you make that? And I'd never made a kitchen table, but it didn't seem like there was any reason why I couldn't. So I agreed to trade him some furniture for so many of his walnut trees. And my friend Charlie had an extra flatbed truck he wasn't using and a small loader. He let me borrow them. And like in a week and a half, I made more money than I had in the previous three months wow cutting 15 trees <laughs> yeah so the light sort of went off a little bit maybe that uh i needed to augment my financial lifestyle by doing a little logging i had a dear friend uh who was a farmer that i used to trade leather goods for sweet jersey milk and eggs and he was looking for something to do in the winter so the two of us sort of teamed up and started finding some uh, small woodlots because neither one of us really had any uh, any money to go out and buy a big track of timber. And we did that one or two winters. And then the third winter just sort of never ran out. Found another track of timber. We kept buying some machinery. Our first log skitter was a 1965 Timberjack 225 that had one good month in it before the engine blew. Wow. By the, by the time the engine blew, we could afford to have it rebuilt. And back in my hippie days, that was a real sign of financial success because rebuilding a diesel motor is not cheap. Yeah, of course. 
and uh, did it just a little bit after that, and I had the opportunity to meet George Nakashima. We were doing a logging job up. Do you know who George Nakashima is? No, tell me. He would have been one of the four iconic woodworkers of the 20th century as far as styles of furniture. He was the man that introduced the use of live-edged wood into and elevated into the realm of fine furniture. And pieces he made, like in 1960, that he sold for $30,000 or bringing half a million dollars at Sotheby's. Wow. Well, to put his uh, genius into perspective, uh, as a child of Japanese immigrants in the 20s, which was a period where racial tolerance for Asians was not overwhelming, he enrolled in Harvard on a full scholarship in architecture. Two weeks after he was there, he decided he didn't like the way they taught, so he went down to MIT where he'd also been offered a full scholarship. Wow. I had a chance to meet him and actually get to know him a little bit, and he blew my mind. Anytime we'd found a really cool log in the woods, instead of selling it, we'd been taking it to a sawmill and having it cut, thinking about doing some woodwork ourselves in the future. But when you're logging and you start looking for cool trees, you sort of find out they're everywhere. Uh, we had filled up a barn with cool wood in the first three years we were doing it. That just was too beautiful to sell. Uh, but then it's sort of like, wow, you know, I've just rebuilt my kitchen and made a couple pieces of furniture. When are we going to use all this wood? So I'd tell some of my friends at the, on the craft show circuit, which I was still doing for the first few years, about this wood. The next thing, they started coming and buying it from me. Shortly thereafter, my wife died, and I had two young kids, a one-year-old and a seven-year-old. So that sort of eliminated the ability to be able to go for Florida for two weeks in February and New York for a four-day weekend to be able to take care of my kids. It sort of left me with the lumber thing that I could still do, but not that I could still be home at night and take care of the kids. Uh, what year was this? 1986. And uh, at that time, all of a sudden, just I started having the word of mouth got around. Back in those days, you know, there were hundreds of distribution yards in the country where you could order 500 or 1,000 feet of cherry lumber, but there weren't places where people could go and handpick 10 boards to build a single piece of furniture. The good furniture makers that were not furniture factories, but more the artists, would rely on friends of theirs that owned a kitchen cabinet shop be able to go and buy 10 pieces of cherry from them. Or uh, There were all kinds of stories. You'd meet these people, and there were all kinds of stories about their searches for unusual wood and people who were willing to work with very particular customers doing small volumes of, of buying. So converted a pole barn into a lumber shed where people could actually come and pick their own boards and pick their own projects. And within three years, there was such an overwhelming demand for that that pretty much stopped logging. Uh, we would take turns. I would uh, go do a job, and uh, my friend would go do one, and then we'd come back. And We did that until 1997. When he was 15 years older, he wanted to retire and turn his share of the company over to his son, who was 15 years younger than I was. And there wasn't the same chemistry between me and the boy as there was between me and the dad, so we split up. 
and moved here to Oxford in 1997. Luckily for me, two or three of the really dedicated uh, crew moved with me, who were like family to me. Now that I didn't have to answer to anybody else as far as a partnership went, from the years of traveling around as a kid, I always liked international travel. Within a year of moving here, I had a person come to me and ask me if we had any English brown oak. And I thought, no, but that must mean it comes from England. There wasn't any internet then, but <laughs> it's amazing how things work. Two days later, an Englishman came in who had moved here, who was a hobby woodworker. And I asked him, uh, hey, uh, what's English brown oak? And he told me. Uh, English brown oak is a, a white oak growing in England, usually a Quercus petraea or a Quercus robar. And it becomes susceptible to a mushroom that grows on the roots that makes an acid that stains the wood brown from the inside out, but it'll also kill the tree and break down the wood structure. So he's explaining this to me, and I said, well, where would you buy it? So he wrote down a name. I called the international operator and got somebody in England, asked for Leicestershire. And she goes, what? She said, spell that. So I did, you know, L-E-I-C-H-E-S-T-E-R-S-H-I-R-E. And she said, oh, Lester. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up calling a company called Whitmore's Timber in, in England. And they said, yeah, we have plenty of it. Come on over. So uh, got on an airplane, flew to England, picked out half a container of English brown oak. And I had a German friend I'd been selling logs to. And uh, when he heard I was going to Europe, he said, well, you've got to come visit me in Germany. Dear friend, and was also a real mentor and contributor to my independence in the lumber business. And when I went over and visited him, he said, look, we have some things here that just aren't of a European nature and taste for design. How about if I ship them to you, you sell them and pay me for them when you sell them? So he loaded me up with a container of European lumber and never called me to ask me when I was going to pay him. And I did pay him over the next couple of years when I did sell things. It's just sort of things like that. We had a guy come in here. He obviously had a lot of money because he'd come in and like he looked at a pair of boards that were $6,000. And and I was sort of embarrassed to tell him, well, that's $6,000. But over here we have something that's really pretty out of a more domestic wood that's a lot less money. And he said, nah, you know. He ended up spending like uh, $30,000. He gave me his card. And... Uh, he was vice president of a company called Oracle. Well, I wasn't really computer savvy in those days, but I looked at the card and something clicked. And I said, hey, uh, you're into computers, right? And he goes, well, uh, yeah. I said, would you build me a web page? And he just laughed because he had an idea that I had no clue who he was or what Oracle was. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll have Vicky do it. Uh, she's our best. So a couple of days later, I got a call from a young lady named Vicky, and she said, hey, Mark wants me to build a web page for you. What do you need? And I started telling her what we did. And she said, well, how about if I send you a portfolio? You can see what I do, and we'll take it from there. I was expecting something like Sarah's candles and Joe's mail-order cutting boards or something like that. 
instead it's a portfolio of original artwork. She not only works for Oracle, she's a professor at Berkeley, and she works for Industrial Light and Magic. So I thought, wow, she's probably qualified. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they built me a web page. For the next two or three years, if you clicked on anything to do with wood, we'd show up as one of the first three entrances on anybody's search engine. But when you're working with favors like that, you really can't have that person jump right on it. So just sort of corresponded my son, uh, Brian, who's now the president of the company here, uh, had just graduated from Villanova and a degree in business. And he came by and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life. And he'd been working with me since he was seven years old. Because after his mom died, if I didn't have babysitters in the uh, summer on weekends and I had to go to the woods, he'd go with me. I'd have uh, his younger brother on my lap, you know, one, two, three years old, and Brian would be walking along with the machinery. He was on the baseball team there. Most of the kids from the baseball team went up for Wall Street. And he said, could I look at our, our books? So I showed it to him, and I don't really have any financial background at all. He said, you know, we have a good company. I thought, well, that's reassuring. (laughs) He said, can I come to work here full time? So I said, sure. And Villanova was really wired at that point. They were uh, one of the first colleges to to have high-speed Internet in the dorms. He didn't have a whole lot of computer courses at Villanova, so he got... uh, books on D-Base 3 Plus and uh, Dreamweaver and all these other things. And he took over the website using using the format that we've been given, but we were able to update it on a weekly basis, which was, again, something that even major lumber companies weren't doing. So it really gave us a good jump as far as the web presence went. That, you know, combined with traveling around, getting unusual wood, the the uh, spiritual guidance of George Nakashima, whose book is called The Soul of a Tree, subtitled The Zen of Woodworking, blew my mind. And we just sort of, uh, using that sort of inspiration, like not doing this for the money. I mean, you know, financial success is always good to be able to pay your bills and all that. But doing it just out of a real passion for the wood and seeing something beautiful and getting goosebumps for it and then wondering what's on the inside of the next one. But along with that also came respect for the resource, respect for the woods. Back when we were logging, uh, one of my favorite things to do was just walk through the woods, and that's actually how I met George Nakashima. The idea is that when we went into a woodlot, we tried to do what was what would promote the health of the woodlot, thinning it out, taking out the, uh, the best trees as far as the ones that would give the landowner a high return, and also taking out the cull trees that would never amount to anything without being any more invasive than we had to be driving a cat log skitter into the woods. We'd send a guy up top into the trees to top them out if they had a wide crown to them and uh, knock all the tops down to within 18 inches of the ground when we were finished and that sort of thing. So trying to feel like we were being responsible about what we were doing and yet still being able to have the fruit of the forest. So how did you get to be this operation that has a mill in Nicaragua and to be at the scale that you're at now? It's just sort of a hobby that got out of control. 
And as far as the lumber industry goes, we'd be just a little blip on a distant radar map. You know, we have two small kilns. We aren't doing anything on a commodity production. We have a big head rig that 150 horsepower that can saw 67 inches wide on 20 feet long. But it's set up that we have to feed the carriage with a Caterpillar loader. And there's no, you know, automatic conveyor belts in and out going to optimizers or anything like that. I was at, uh, do you know, are you familiar with the company Anderson Tully? Uh, no, I'm not. There, it's a big sawmill down on the Mississippi, in Mississippi. I think they actually have a second location, too. But they are commodity. They, they saw 200,000 feet a day. And I went down there to buy some true pecan logs because... The actual true bitternut pecan has a beautiful, lively interior, more like a maple, a tight grain, than the normal hickory that pecan is classified. When you look at the grading rules, it's hickory slash pecan, and there are seven members of that family. But the actual true bitternut pecan can have a really spectacular color to the inside of it. For veneer, it's marketed as satin walnut. So the mill manager down there without being an asshole, came up to me and said, here, there was a Pennsylvania lumber guy down there. You know, he said, we saw 200,000 feet a day. What do you saw? And it was more out of curiosity than, you know, bragging rights. And I said, well, you're asking me the wrong question. Uh, It might take us an hour to decide whether we're going to turn the log. (laughs) Right, yeah. It's a different kind of business. Yeah. And it's all respect, because you find a lot of those guys, even in the big sawmills, they also love lumber, get a little sawdust in their veins. I had a guy come to me from Nicaragua who was a dual U.S. citizen. He was at wit's end because he delivered a couple containers up here to one of our competitors, who will go nameless, and he hadn't been paid for them. And uh, he wanted, uh, the man loved the forest in Nicaragua, he loved the rosewood trees that he was cutting and wanted to create a business but he was being busted by this other guy. And we developed somewhat of a friendship, and I helped him out a little bit. In part of that cooperation, we partnered with him and started our own sawmill down there. We used to, he used to get the logs, similar to what I used to do back in the early days, and then take them and have them custom cut at another mill. But, you know, his dream was always to have his own sawmill, have the flexibility of having his own sawmill. We partnered with him in that. And in part of the sawmilling, we also feel that we owe something to the community. So we got the idea that what would be cool would be to make this thing sustainable if we started a nursery and started planting out rosewood trees and mahogany trees and cedar trees. We feel you should have a balanced forest, not just a monoculture. And part of the culture in Central America is coffee farming. In coffee farming, I'd always watch television commercials of Juan Valdez and the beautiful Colombian coffee farms, and they look like uh, great plantations in Napa. And that's not the way it's done. It's uh, coffee, the best coffee is a shade uh, tolerant bush tree that grows in under a, in the understory. And you'll be driving in Nicaragua past what looks like wild jungle forests on the Pacific side. And uh, yet they're 
thousands and thousands of people in there tending to coffee trees, coffee bushes, trees. It occurred to me that what we might be able to do would be to take some of these people that were that had had their land clear cut and were growing beans or something else that if we encouraged them to reforest some of their farm we would pay them for the loss of crops for that portion of uh, ground for 5 years while we and we would plant the trees out there at no cost to them then in five years they could plant coffee in under the trees and the coffee could become their income because there's actually a better market for coffee beans. And so far we have two of them going and we do have the nursery going. Actually, we have three of them going. So then you said you have 22 employees. Can you give me a sense of what what everybody's doing? Okay, we're sort of divided into four groups. We've got our office group. We've got our lumber sales group which uh, if somebody comes in and wants to buy a big slab, we actually can saw, between the different mill setups we have, we can saw up to nine feet wide. And uh, we have planks here that are over 20 feet long. So those guys would take care of that sort of thing or selling a 1,000 feet of French walnut or Swiss pear or Italian olive or American cherry. And then we have the sawmill group, which is three guys, mostly Amish, take care of milling up the logs that come in. And then we have a guitar group. Uh, We sell a lot of lumber to the guitar industry, uh, both to small boutique builders and to the large instrument manufacturers. And that's a pretty highly skilled group because you have to be able to create a blank in a form that they are able to use and understand the grain, the nature of the wood, uh, the grading of the figure. And then my son Brian and I travel around the world buying logs and lumber, although we haven't done a lot of that this year. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how's everything going with the COVID? Well, normally I would have 80,000 airline miles by this time of year, and I made one trip to uh, California in January, and he hasn't made a trip yet. It's it's really sort of putting a hole in my soul. That's... uh, something that's really compelling to me to be able to visit other lands, other cultures, develop friendships, and uh, discover new things, both about the world and about yourself when you're walking through a different country. Have your customers still been calling you and, and wanting the supply? Yes. I have an Italian friend that I've traveled, traveled all over the world with. When this thing first hit Italy really badly, we were talking at least once a week. We've gone on vacations together before. My German friends in touch, our Australian friends, our Canadian friends, our Nicaraguan friends, our Belizean friends. And we have been getting material out of those countries, but it's a whole lot less fun than when we go and pick the material out ourselves. And shipping has been, you know, manageable, I guess? Well, the thing about it is, if a private equity firm took over our company, they would say we couldn't justify our inventory based on sales. So we could probably be just fine here. We could probably sell lumber for three years out of here and not really have a lot of holes in our inventory. You know, it's it's interesting because I've interviewed plenty of people that had log import and export companies who said that their business was 
really destroyed by the internet. And you seem to kind of have the opposite timeline. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that uh, depends on buying and selling. One of the problems people had that were selling logs, which a lot, which is usually what happens in this country, um, is that as soon as the internet came along, the uh, a lot of the people like the Koreans and the Chinese and all that started coming in direct being uh, working directly with the source, with the producers, rather than the, you know, the accumulators. Well, I know right now the trade is really interrupted with uh, China, and a whole lot of the American forest product was being shipped in log form to China. And uh, I don't know, you know, if we want to start a political battle uh, in your magazine, I could sit I could suggest that it's absolutely wrong to ship an unvalue-added product overseas. Well, there are a lot who don't <laughs> because they're financially vested in, in harvesting and exporting American forest products, putting a whole lot of good jobs, good American jobs, out of work to furniture factories in other countries. So anyway, that part you can strike from your... <laughs> no, no, we we talk about these things. The the magazine I try to represent different opinions within the industry cuz it's important. Well, I did want to see if you had like a, you know, do you have a favorite place that you go and and source wood from? Hawaii is pretty nice. Are you familiar with Koa at all? KOA? No, not no, not really. Um, have you ever been to Hawaii? No, I've not. Okay, a lot of their airports are paneled in it. Uh, it's an absolutely gorgeous wood, vibrant. It can go from gold to chocolate brown, passing through orange and crimson, and it can be in the same board, and it can have a chatoyancy that you don't get to that degree in any other type of wood. It only grows from two to 6,000 feet, only grows well on one island, although you do find it on Maui and Kauai, it's normally only found on the big island. 90% of all of it that is in a zoning that is legal to produce lumber from has been cut because it's in the cattle ranching area. And the rest of it is in a conservation zone, which you can't cut any out of. So you're up there at two to 6,000 feet. You're looking out over the ocean, 55 to 60 degrees when you wake up in the morning. It's 80 degrees during the day. There's fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, fresh fish, the world's finest beef, uh, because the soil is so nutrient-rich that they don't have to finish the beef to get the marbling. Incredibly warm, friendly, musical people. It's just a fun place to be. Yeah, that does sound very ideal. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah. Okay, well, great. I'll follow up with you then, and I hope you have a great rest of your afternoon, and we'll just talk soon. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Have a good one. Thanks again to Rick Hearn for the conversation and to our sponsor, John Deere. With everything that's stacked against you, you need an equipment provider that backs you 100%. John Deere offers proven products and intelligent innovations that go beyond high-quality productive machines. 
Our focus on helping you has helped make us the leader in the forestry industry, delivering full solutions for over 50 years. Number one in the woods, John Deere.